Welcome to GodPod. This is a podcast from St. Paul's Theological Centre based in Holy Trinity Brompton here in London. Jane Williams, Mike Lloyd and the occasional guest join me, Graham Tomlin, in discussing God, life, theology, the Bible, in fact, just about everything. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to GodPod 72. And uh, this is me, Graham Tomlin, and uh, with me today are Michael Lloyd. Hello. And Stephen Backhouse. Hello again. Doctors both. Indeed. And sadly, missing Jane. Sadly, missing Jane. I did actually, um, just a few moments ago, (laughs) tweeted to the world that uh, we were (laughs) about to do GodPod 72 and admitted also to the world that there was myself, Michael and Stephen, and I've already had floods of emails coming back saying, we want Jane, why don't you phone her in or something like that. There's a Jane-shaped gap in our lives. <laughs> there certainly is, and um, which would be very nice, but she is in New Zealand at the moment, which is a rather long way to, um, to come. But we do appreciate that vote of confidence that came <laughs> in. <laughs> it's all nice to know. That <laughs> let, that be, let that be said. People are switching off all over the world right now because <laughs> they haven't got Jane coming in. Um, and she's going to Papua New Guinea as well. She is, that's right, yeah. Hmm. She's um, travelling the other side of the world. So we are here with our usual coffee and everything else. And actually, Mike, Mike is eating some strange things that look rather like they're, tadpoles. They me. do look like tadpoles, um, uh, but they're, in fact, organic mixed bean sprouts, mm, which okay. are, well, they're having their sugary, biscuity things. <laughs> I'm, I'm help making my body healthy and uh, I know it doesn't look it move away from the famous Godpod biscuits to organic bean sprouts which Indeed. don't look anything like as nice as the biscuits well you haven't tried them they look like seeds that you plant in the ground rather than put in your mouth but, um, well um, there's a certain amount of overlap between those two things <laughs> so there you go well anyway Good. today we have um, a series of questions thank you again for everybody to everybody who's uh, sent in questions uh, in um, the last few weeks and months. And we're going to do a number of questions today on uh, on Jesus because um, there were a number of questions that clustered around um, who, you know, how we understand the person of Jesus and what he does and says and, and so on. And um, the first one was a, um, uh, a very interesting question that came in from uh, Clara Hardingham, which um, says, uh, Dear Graham, Mike and Jane, Blessed memory. <laughs> uh, I have listened to almost every single God pod. That's, oh, that's very impressive. A feat of um, something, endurance. And have gained a lot from your wisdom. Goodness me. Uh, so I wanted to email in for a while with this question. Was Jesus Jesus before Jesus? So let me explain. Just unpack that, yes. Uh, before he came to earth incarnate, did the Son exist as part of God? Uh, does the Trinity exist before the Incarnation? That's the question that's being mm-hmm. asked here. So it's a very interesting mm-hmm. question. So um, throw that one open and see who wants to have a go. Michael, well, you're about to start. <laughs> He's all pepped up with Why beans. I'm pepped up with beans. Um, uh, or has beans. Um, I, I think the, the, at one level, of course, the answer is no. Jesus was not Jesus before Jesus um, because he came to be as Jesus um, at a particular moment uh, in the historical process. It was the incarnation was a historical thing. Uh, he wasn't Jesus before that. However, um, he was the Son before that. He was there as part of the Trinity. The Trinity, yes, 
uh, has always existed. The fundamental fact about reality and about existence is the relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. That makes love the primary thing, the fundamental fact, the one thing that you can't do away with or get rid of or, or go behind. Um, and I think that actually chimes in with our basic sense that love is the most important thing in existence. Uh, a number of worldviews um, and philosophies make love peripheral, make love secondary, make love a kind of Johnny-come-lately. Um, if you simply have a kind of evolutionary view with no nothing deeper than that or behind that, um, then love is something that has emerged very lately on the evolutionary spectrum. Um, if you have a Trinitarian understanding of who God is, then it is the basic fact, the irreducible fact um, from which everything else flows. Uh, and that, I think, chimes with our basic sense that this is <laughs> the most important thing in our, in our experience. Mm. I think that's basically right. <laughs> it pains you to say you had a pained expression on your face. I mean, that, that, is, that is right. It seems right. to me that, and, and you go back to John 1, which I guess is the text that would help to illumine this more than perhaps any other. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So it's, it's very clear from that that in the very beginning, the Word was there with God. And that, so there is, if you like, this distinction within God of God and his Word that is there in the beginning. And that's not something that comes into 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 being in 3 BC or whenever it was that the Jesus was was born that um, a Christian view of of God has trinity right at the heart of it trinity is not a sort of later development in the life of God not a kind of evolution of God so that God is purely one who then becomes three hmm. no he is trinity right at the very beginning now clearly that text of John doesn't talk about the spirit quite so much, but of course in mm -hmm. Genesis 1 verse 2, right at the very beginning of, of, of what the Bible says about about God, we do have that idea of the spirit brooding over the waters and this this sense that the spirit is there in the beginning too. And so it's not surprising that the early Christians, when they tried to articulate their understanding of God, particularly in the light of the coming of Christ, um, uh, perceived that, that the, the Trinity wasn't just something that came into being when the incarnation happened. It was there from the very beginning, but that the incarnation brings about arguably a, a, a kind of new, um, a new reality, which is that the word becomes flesh at oh. that moment. So oh. the word existed, or the son existed, if you can use that language. Um, but the word, the son, becomes flesh in the person of Jesus of Nazareth in three BC or whatever it was. Um, the other point to say about that is, of course, there's that is that when when Jesus dies, is resurrected, and ascends, it's not that he then puts off his human flesh, that actually from that time onwards, he, he ascends as human into the yes. heart of God. So it seems to me that we can say, as a result of the ascension, that humanity has been brought up into God in Christ, so that we can participate in God because of the incarnation. So it's not that it's a sort of brief enfleshment in, in the 30 years of Jesus' life, and then he kind of goes back into being pure, unfleshed word again. Mm -hmm. um, but from that moment onwards, something significant has happened to the, to the human relationship with, with God. A lot of people make heavy, they make a big meal out of some of those Old Testament 
passages about well you mentioned the the spirit uh hovering over the mm. surface of the waters and god says let us make you know mm. um and what about i don't know abraham when those the three visitors appear to abraham and that's seen as a trinitarian thing or in proverbs about the wisdom being with god at the beginning of the world a lot of people make a lot of meal out of that saying that's trinitarian evidence or something do you what do you guys think about that I I kind of think it only works retrospectively. Right. I mean, it's really interesting that no Jewish theologian that I'm aware of no. before uh, Christianity arrived yeah. ever interpreted it in that way. Yeah. Um, so I th- I think it is when you have come alive to a new understanding of who God is as relationship, um, then you read obviously the old testament with with new eyes and you see things there whether um that's justifiably or not mm. i don't know to be honest mm-hmm. um but uh, but I, I i don't think at the time anybody would have interpreted it in that way no because no, on no. its own it's slightly ambiguous isn't it and that i mean for example the idea of wisdom which in the old testament is seen as a kind of you know a, a an aspect of God is wisdom. Another way of talking about the Word which became incarnate in Christ. Well, in Christian authors have often seen that yeah. and interpreted yeah. wisdom. And of course, in one Corinthians, it, I think one verse thirty, it talks about in you know, a Christ as the wisdom of God. Mm. And yet, it was those very texts from Proverbs that Arius used in his to, to defend his Arian heresy, the idea that the Word was created and not not part of God, mm. because you know you got in Proverbs eight twenty two, the Lord brought me forth as the first of His works before His deeds of old, which implies that wisdom is a created thing. So of course Arius right. then said, Ah, oh, well there you go, wisdom is created, the Word is created, therefore we shouldn't really think of Jesus as divine, which was a, a bit of a blind alley for the church to go down that line. Mm-hmm. And the church decided eventually, no, that's not right. That's not what we think about Christ. So, um, so I think that's right. You, on its own terms, it's that, those kind of texts are ambiguous. Yeah. Do they necessarily lead towards Trinity? Might they lead towards a, a kind of binity or a yeah. quadernity or something? You know, <laughs> um, and it seems to me you, you can only really, or it was only possible to discern the Trinitarian nature of God after the incarnation and Pentecost. Before that, it was very hard to. Now, you, looking back, you can see traces of it in Old Testament. Um, but in a way, Christians always do that, it seems to me, with the Old Testament. We always read the, the Old Testament in the light of the events of Christ and the coming of the Spirit. I, I think yeah. what is true is that the Old Testament was not, and this is something Tom Wright in his writings quite often, a point he makes, is that the Old Testament view of God is not concerned with the mathematical unity of God. And there are places where God sh- shares his throne um, Psalm 110, come and sit at my right hand uh, with a human person. And there were Jewish rabbis in 120 who saw Bar Kokhba, the uh, messianic pretender, as, as, as sharing the throne of God. Um, so they weren't perhaps so hung up on mathematical unity as, as we kind of think they were. Um, and what the Christians did was to use those those passages Psalm 110 is not coincident not it's not a coincidence that it's the most quoted psalm in the, in the new testament mm-hmm. um, because they say look there, there is within your thinking yeah a, a platform that we can build upon it's not completely there's resources there are resources for <laughs> talking about jesus as being 
God. Exactly. Without completely breaking the we, culture and religious context in which we, he grew up out e of. Exactly. Yeah. I think the other, the other thing that comes out of this discussion is that the sense that in the incarnation, God really does become human. He, he actually, you know, that the word is joined to a real human being, not a sort of idealized human being which somehow existed on some other plane that just appeared mm -hmm. from, from, mm -hmm. from nowhere, like a kind of spaceman who just appears here that's different from us. He, you know, the, the word actually is joined to a real human being, Jesus of Nazareth. Now, that's not the same as the kind of classical Christian heresy of adoptionism, the idea that Jesus was just born and then as an ordinary human being and therefore and then the Spirit joined into him and he became the Son of God. Right from the very beginning, he is the Word incarnate. But we are talking about the, the joining together of the divine Word and a real, a real person, uh -huh. in a sense, just like us. And I think that's what this idea that, that you know, if we're saying Jesus was not Jesus before Jesus, <laughs> um, that, you know, that the Word became incarnate at a particular time in human history. And before that time, if we can talk in terms of before, uh, he was not incarnate. It does emphasize, it seems to me, that, that you know, we are talk when we deal with Jesus, we're talking about a, a real human person as well as real God at the same time. Yes. And then the, the, the eternal bodiliness of Jesus, the, the fact that he's taken on human flesh, God has taken on human flesh and isn't going to stop having a body in Jesus. Is that where we start to get our sense of a transformed the eschatology or the hope, the Christian hope is of a transformed body, or the, the kind of body that Paul talks about where he saw on the road to Damascus is it is that is that what we think of when we try to think of Jesus having a having a body I, I, I think it's a really really ex exciting concept yeah. uh, there's a wonderful old prayer of the church that talks about the son of God did most wonderfully uh, take upon upon himself human flesh as never more to lay it off yes uh, eternally God is not only eternally committed to humanity he's now internally committed to yes. humanity he cannot abandon the world without yeah. abandoning himself. Yeah, uh, he cannot abandon us without abandoning himself. That that is how sure mm. is is our future transformation. Have you ever have you guys ever read Douglas Farrow? A little bit. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So Doug, he was one of my teachers, and he's written some brilliant stuff on ascension, on the ascension in particular. His, yes. his his sort of academic book is Ascension and Ecclesia, but then a little bit more easy to access is Ascension Theologies. So if you want to follow up this one, yeah. Douglas Farrow. And he Ancient talks about the, the eternal bodiness of Jesus. Yeah. 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 And I think that one, one more thing before we leave this, and, and just that the, the long, longer I kind of work pastorally, the more I think that the doctrine of the Trinity is uh, a hugely evangelistic doctrine uh, in the modern age. Um, because as I say, I think people do sense that love is the most important thing in their lives. Uh, and Christianity because of the doctrine of the Trinity is the only worldview I know of that makes love absolutely the central reality yeah. um, and I don't know of any other yeah. worldview or religion that does that mm. Be because it has a relationship where you have just a God an internal God there's mm. nobody for him to love until he creates the world yeah. Yeah. Um, whereas here in the doctrine of the Trinity you have the Father loving the Son, the Son loving the Spirit, the Spirit loving the Father, and all the other permutations of that. Forever, that is the ultimate That's the engine-driving reality. Exactly. Yeah. Very good. Well, we could talk about that for a long time more. But we must move on to our next question. So thank you very much to Clara for her very interesting question. The second one is um, from Claire 
in Reading who asks the question, this is something that puzzles me as I try to explain what Jesus' death achieved to friends or my, my uh, children. Why didn't Jesus talk plainly? Why didn't he just say, I am the incarnation of God. I have come to reconcile man to God and will achieve this through my death in which I will take your sins on myself, pay the punishment that your sins deserve, and thereby usher in a new time of personal relationship between God and man through the Spirit, which will enable my kingdom to come in the world. Or words to that effect. Seems to me that our theology of Jesus relies on images from the scriptures, Old Testament. He assumes we understand references to sheep, temples, vines, and so on. His clearest declaration is to say, I am. Could he not have given his disciples a little rundown over the Last Supper about what his death would achieve? So um, there's a question that I think bugs quite a lot of people. Uh, why didn't Jesus talk a little bit more plainly? Why is he so darned hard to understand? <laughs> Do you, want to, do you want to have us go? Well, I think one of, one of the things that's really uh, interesting is that what the gospel is, is different, is perceived differently um, in every generation. There are different things about human experience to which the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus speak. Um, so in the early church, uh, there's a huge sense in which the death of Jesus uh, frees us from spells and from um, enchantments. Uh, and there's a tremendous sense of, of liberation uh, from, from that sort of thing. Now, that's not an angle we often take because we don't live in that culture. Um, but, but what uh, Claire has given us there is, is one, one take uh, of what the gospel is. Actually, the reason that it doesn't quite fit what Jesus says is because the gospel is bigger than that. The gospel is always bigger than that. Right. It's right. bigger than any person or any century or any generation can um, can explore. Yeah. Uh, and, and part of the reason why it's obscure, and he doesn't just say what we see as our little slice of, of the gospel, is because the gospel's a whole lot bigger than that. It's bigger than just the summary that... Which is a pretty good summary. It's a, there. It's a very, very good summary of yeah. one. But the other thing I want to point out is he was pretty plain. I mean, they killed him. The, the world wasn't big enough. The, the, the religious and political world that he lived in couldn't live with it because he was so obviously saying something that saying something that upset people. If, if he had just spoken in complete riddles all the time, then you wouldn't have tried to kill him. Um, and, and everywhere he went, if if he spoke anything like the Sermon on the Mount, which he did, uh, he would have done that in from village to village. And if anybody took that even remotely seriously, they would have created little communities, which the New Testament calls ecclesia, communities set apart. They would have created little communities who took Jesus seriously and his and his teaching. And they themselves would have started to act, looked different. It was pretty plain how different Jesus was and the people who followed him. He does seem to have been crucified under the charge of blasphemy. Yeah. That he was implying, or certainly was taken to imply, yeah. that he was on the same level as God in some form. Yeah. And now, again, you can ask the question, why doesn't he come out with it straight and say, I am God, or I am the second person of the Trinity, or I am the divine word, as we've just been talking about yeah. in the last question. But it seems to me there's, there's something about Jesus... The kind of the the, um, the way in which Jesus speaks that draws you in, it makes you think, because he doesn't just tell you a straight answer. Yeah, he uh, he always asks you questions. That seems to be so often the way in which he interacts with people. He doesn't just say, oh, "Here's the answer." 
he asks them another question, mm. which draws them in and, and, and intrigues them and makes them going to go further. Partly because it seems to me that, precisely because, I think as Claire is saying here, we're talking about a relationship with God. We're talking about one in which it's not just a, a neat answer which we can then mm. give out to anybody who asks it, but we're actually being drawn into a relationship where we are to explore who God is and understand who he is and try to put that into words and try to explore it both sort of personally, spiritually, intellectually in every single way. And there's something about a sort of neat statement which is helpful and we have some of those in the creeds we have the church's summary of what, what the church believes but you don't do evangelism by just reading out the creeds to people in pubs no um, what you do is you, in, in, you you invite people into a, a relationship with this intriguing compelling person jesus who uh who intrigues precisely because he doesn't always give you a straight answer mm. Mm. it's not that there aren't answers there it's not that he isn't claiming something for himself but the way in which the language works, it seems to me, draws you into relationship with, with Christ, draws you into this journey of discovery that, um, that in a sense, never ends because we never get to the very heart of God in that way. And, and this, the sense of the, <coughs> the messianic secret, which sometimes theologians talk about, which just seems to be a theme running through the Gospels, of where people will explicitly say something you are a christ or a demon will say you are the son of god and jesus will tell them to be quiet or to not say it anymore and there does seem to be a sense that jesus keeping that mystery or keeping that slightly less overt statement is part of his message is just like you were saying he's not coming to proclaim the sort of message that people were expecting to hear well i I think this is really important because people had a uh, a particular idea of what the Messiah would right, be. exactly. And <clears throat> for him to have said, yes, I am the Messiah, yeah. would be to say, yes, I fit into those categories. Yeah. Yes, I does. am a nationalistic rebel, or yes, I am a... And I am yeah. leading an uprising yeah. against the Romans, or whatever. Yeah. It would have given completely the wrong message. It would yeah. have said, I fit into your categories. Yeah. And, and he precisely does not fit into our yeah. categories. But I think the same is also true of, of God. Simply to have said, I am yeah. God... <laughs> would have um, fitted into their categories of who God was. Yes. And actually part of what he wants to do is to change the, and yeah. challenge some of those as well. Which is why all of Jesus' statements <coughs> are always in, in the Gospels are given to us in the context of a life that he's living. It's not just a series of context-less verses. Yes. It's all part of he did this and then he said this or he said this and then they did this and there's a sense that everything that's going on is a re-education. It's not just the words, it's also the actions that are going on around. And, and and his life, which is a cruciform life, so that's another point to pay attention to, is he's re-educating people. That being a sire means I'm going to be suffering. And, and, and he has crucified. to build up his own categories yeah. Yeah. To, to be understood, yeah. not slot into theirs or indeed ours. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think that's... And, and why does he not, the night before he died, talk them through um, what his death means? Well, in a sense, he does. He's Mm. It has a Passover meal, and it, where it, he should have said, "This is the bread that your fathers ate uh, in mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, Egypt and in the desert. wilderness and the desert." Um, he says, "This is my, my body, body. Broken, broken for you." Yeah. He is precisely putting himself yeah. in the place of um, a the people of Israel and and b uh, in the place of the Passover mm. and uh, inviting them to see his death mm. rather like the, the Passover lamb. It's it's also I think that I, I, I do feel the force of the question because I remember mm-hmm. thinking myself as a younger Christian well you know why 
Why isn't there a nice, neat summary that I can just read out to people and get the words mm. right? And and um, I was thinking recently about how you know how the, in the Eastern Church they they talk about the, theology or theologia as actually the highest form of prayer. That theology isn't a sort of academic exercise where you try to get your words, words right. right. It's actually a, a, a form of prayer. In other words, exploration of an articulation of who, who God is is actually part of our journey of prayer. It's part of our engagement with God. And that's something you can't, mm. you can't do that secondhand. You Mm-mm. can't take someone else's phrase and just use that. Mm. You kind of almost have to do that yourself. You have to kind of, exp- every time you try to explain the faith to a friend, whether they're Christian or, or not, you're trying to put it into words. You're trying to to do justice to this God that you've encountered, that you're in relationship with. Mm. And that's something you almost have to do yourself. You can't just borrow anybody else's words for it because actually it's your relationship with God, um, but you're inviting them into their relationship with God as well. So it's because it's relationship, it seems to me it can't just be tied down to one Mm. particular form of words. And and you'll use it differently depending on the person you're you're talking to because the gospel is such a rich thing it implies in in different ways to different contexts different situations and different people of course there are overlaps things that we all need you know forgiveness or whatever but there are particular things that people will uh, experience as good news yeah. to them at that moment I, I, it wouldn't be a god pod with me on it if i didn't talk about saint kierkegaard <laughs> but, but 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 kierkegaard talked about this precisely he said I, I, i'm not a waiter who's going to deliver christianity to you on a silver platter as if I can show up at your table and lift off the top and there it is. He said, it's, you have to meet Jesus. You have to make decisions about what Jesus says he is and what he says about himself. And that is how you become a Christian. It's not being offered something fully formed that you can just lift yeah. off a plate. It's precisely because it's yeah. about meeting Jesus. Exactly. It's very personal. And it's back to actually yeah. the love. Yes. That, that Christianity is not a set of doctrines. It's actually a relationship of love. And you have to choose to be offended by that or to engage in it. And... Jesus is the reflection of that. God is a person. God is not an object. At the same time, I think I'd also want to say that, yes, it isn't a set of doctrine at its heart, but doctrine is still an important aspect of Christian discipleship and Christian faith and and, and, and the church. And what the church Mm. does is, is to reflect upon its relationship with God, upon what has happened in the coming of Christ and the, and the coming mm. of the Spirit. And it's important that we do doctrine. But th- that grew out of their, yeah. the early churches, the yeah. people who knew Jesus and the people who knew the people who knew Jesus were reflecting on that yeah. engagement with a person. And that's part of And that's where the doctrine came from. Part of discipleship is to do theology. Yeah. And, and yeah. part of the reason they decided some things were heresies uh, were not because they were clamping down on things, but because the heresies narrowed down yeah. who God is and what he's done mm-hmm. in, in ways that, that foreclose all sorts of options they're they're they, they're less life-giving yeah um good yeah. well that's another very interesting question so thank you claire for that one and um just going on to very one last one before we uh, finish and it's still on the theme of jesus which is our strand for today uh, this is from david uh Jonas. i think that's how you pronounce it j-o-n-n-e-s from brighton who says uh, I, he is a bit spooked out apparently I'm sorry. He says he's working He's working his way backwards and listening to older God pods. Well, that would be enough to spook anybody out. I would. Question number one, humor in the Bible below was asked answered 20 minutes after asking it when I listened to God pod 50. I'm not quite sure what that means, but there you go. <laughs> That's why he's spooked out. So anyway, this question is, Jesus sometimes seems harsh and unforgiving of his disciples. He is seen rebuking his disciples with statements like, get, be, get thee behind me, Satan. Have you so little faith? And so on. 
for what might seem quite understandable lapses. Is it the nature of the scripture and the historical context that sees some of the lightness of touch and humour that we might admire in a leader lost to modern readers? Why aren't there more jokes in the Bible? Why does Jesus sound a bit harsh and stern? Uh, it's a good question. <clears throat> um, the one bit I, I think I disagree with the premise of uh, is that he's unforgiving of his disciples. Um, I, harsh, I, we'll look at that one. Um, that, that's a fair that's a fair point. But I think unforgiving, given, uh, for instance, his relationship with Peter, that wonderful scene on the on the beach um, in in John twenty one, where uh, he he gives Peter the chance to undo hmm. his threefold denial with a threefold affirmation of love, and recommissions him uh, to lead and feed his people. Um, I think is is well, it's something <clears throat> I depend upon completely for my own ministry and Christian life um, and is a beautiful picture, I think, of, of the extent of his forgiveness uh, and his trust mm -hmm. of the disciples that he continues to trust Peter to do that um, despite what Peter has done. Okay, so... But he was, do you think he was harsh, though? You, you didn't have a problem with the word harsh. Do you think Jesus was harsh? Or are these the disciples writing it down after the fact and saying, yeah, it was my bad, it got that one wrong? The disciples are quite keen to tell us when they got it wrong in their in the Gospels. I think I would use the word sharp rather than right, harsh. Right. Um, I think he, more than most of us, um, says what he thinks, Jesus, partly because he's not actually uh, some, a people pleaser. He's not yeah, somebody who yeah. needs their approval, their <laughs> affirmation, them to like him. It's part of the messianic secret we just talked about. It's, it is. He yeah. doesn't need people uh, in the way that we often don't say what we feel yeah. because we want to be liked. Yeah. Um, Jesus doesn't have that problem. He's not warped in that particular way. <laughs> um, and therefore, some of the things he says, one goes, whoa, <laughs> I don't think I would have said that. Um, but it went with probably uh, you know, them feeling more loved than by him than by anybody else. And therefore, they took the criticism as that which it's intended to be, which is which is trying to make them the people that God made them to be and helping them to be that. Um, there is a... Um, but it's true, isn't it, that you, you can tend to take criticism better from people who you feel are fundamentally on your side. Mm. If you feel that someone just doesn't like you or has got no great interest in you or doesn't give you the time of day. When they criticise you, you're much more likely, it seems to me, to kind of just try to reject that criticism and mm -hmm. trying to think, trying to justify yourself. But I guess when someone who really does value me and and <coughs> um, wants the very best for me points out something in me that might not be quite right, I'm a little bit more likely to listen than that. Uh, than otherwise, and that may provide some of the context for this. That there's the possibility of Jesus, Jesus' critique of the disciples, which clearly was taken to heart, stuck home because of the depth of commitment that he had to them, mm -hmm. that they sensed in him. And in fact, that kind of sharp criticism is the flip side of saying you are capable of so much more here mm. uh, it's it's the flip side of a real trust in them yeah 
that they can be better, they can do better, that they need not be characterized by that lack of faith or whatever it is. How, how yeah. does that work in the church, though? Because I guess sometimes in the church we're not that good at, at saying what we think and sometimes being a bit harsh with one another. We gloss over things that are not right because sometimes a, a harshness can come from a place not of security as it does in Jesus but from a sense of resentment or a, a sense of, um, I know, a, wanting to put everyone right it doesn't always come from a healthy place as you sense it does in Jesus so how, how do we do that in a way that's quite healthy and constructive rather than destructive well I, I think I think two things one is that we need to be honest with people I remember being in a particular pastoral situation um, where people had not told somebody the real reason that she wasn't being selected for a particular kind of ministry uh, within the church because they thought she'd be hurt by it. And and she was going crazy with all the kind of other reasons that she was given. And I said, no, we've got to be honest with her here. If, if, we don't, if we're not honest, she can't be, she can't do anything about it. Yeah. Um, and and I, think that, I think that was right. And, and I think we need to be more honest in that kind of way because it gives people the, the chance to do something about it. It gives them the option of, of, of working on it. On the other hand, I think we also need to realize we are not Jesus. We don't love people the way he does. We may, it may come from an unhealthy place within us and we need to be very careful and, and just ask ourselves, look, look inside ourselves to see where this is coming from before we do something that we know is going to be hurtful to somebody. So I guess the question may be, if you feel the need to say something harsh to someone else, am I doing this for my sake because it makes me feel better? Or is, am I doing it for their sake because it gives them a chance to to, to, to change and to... Yes, and take and, and, and don't do it till the next day. Yeah. Sleep on it, literally. I like how in, uh, in, in Matthew where... The, uh, the the whole passage about where two or three are gathered together, there I am with you. Jesus says that. Um, uh, it's actually a passage about, not about petitionary prayer, but a passage about going to a brother who has a fault and you go with somebody and you agree together to talk to that brother. Mm-hmm. And Jesus says, when you do that, there I am with you. Um, it's a it's a it's about this confrontation of and and, and, of and it's fault. saying get somebody else's wisdom on it. Yeah, get, get other people do involved. Do it as part of a church. Yeah. Also, it's not coincidentally one of the other two mentions in the Gospels where the word church is used. Um, go with this is part of church. This is part of being in a church. You honestly face each other's faults, and then you honestly receive them. I think that's my. I'm not very good at honestly hearing people when they tell me things. I don't hear it very well, so I need to maybe work on that hearing it well. I think the the other interesting thing is is when Jesus, <clears throat> the last week of his life, goes well, depending on how you date it, um, goes to Jerusalem, goes to the temple, sees the money changers and all of that. He doesn't there and then drive them out. He goes back to Bethany, spends the night, comes back in, and then clears out. Yeah, he actually takes time to think: Is this? It's a de- there. De- these are deliberate actions. Going to the person who's Yes. The, the brother who's offended you or her fault. It's a deliberate action. It's not off the cuff. You're not losing your temper with them. So. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Take yeah. time to think, to pray, to, and to, and to yeah. get the wisdom of other people, get the advice and possibly the involvement of other people. Are there any jokes in the Bible? Is the second part of this question. Hmm. Where's the humor? 
well, one of the problems with humour is that it's very difficult. Doesn't you only need to watch, look at some of the old yeah. Punch cartoons to realise it's very difficult yeah. to, exactly. to work out what no. the humour was in the previous actually. age. I think yeah. there's a lot of humour. There's a lot of satire in the Bible which we miss because we don't understand the targets. And yeah, yeah. even even books like Revelation, which we wouldn't think is funny, would have probably originally been read as some in some ways a bit of a satire yeah. as well. Which and, we've, and we've missed that. A lot of modern scholarship has suggested the Book of Esther is is right. um, yeah. actually a humorous book. So no, it doesn't immediately appear that. And right. Jesus's stories of farmers yeah. and camels merchants and, and camels and, and uh, there's it's not yeah. laugh out loud funny, but it it's certainly not Maybe serious. It was then. It well, might have been then. They yeah. were in stitches. Yeah. Maybe they were. Yeah. yeah. Well, there are a number of questions around this theme of. Uh, encounter with Jesus and I guess that maybe for me the thing that ties them all together is this very um, the sense in which Jesus is incredibly intriguing and and compelling and character that you can't quite tie down that draws you into himself and by coming close to Jesus you come close to the heart of God and that is a journey that's a process it's not a you know right, I've got it now I can move on to something else and I think this you know, Jesus' harshness to the disciples is part of the journey by which they are being transformed into something a little bit more like himself. And therefore there's something for us in that, in, in that when, when people criticize us, maybe we ought to be a little bit less quick to respond and reject the criticism, but just to try and listen, is there something in there, this gem of truth that I have to hold on to? Might there be something of Jesus' harshness? in other people's harshness to us sometimes. And I think the fact that he's intriguing and we can't quite pin him down is precisely because um, he doesn't fit our categories and it's an invitation to change our categories. Yeah. And that's why, as you, say, as you say, it's a journey, it's a process. We keep having to have those categories refined, changed, our understanding uh, enlarged. Mm. Um, but that's a lifelong process. Very good. Well, thank you, everybody, for sending in your questions. And thank you to Michael. It's a pleasure. And to Stephen. Goodbye for now. I think we survived somehow without Jane. But she will be back, hopefully, next time around for Godpod 73. So uh, until then, uh, goodbye from all of us. Bye. Goodbye. That was Godpod, a podcast from the St. Paul's Theological Centre. If you want to send us a question, just email it to godpod at htb.org.uk. We can't promise to answer all the questions you send in, but we'll certainly try. Until next time, goodbye.